Welcome back to the Grand Valley Church Podcast, a community of faith in Brandon, Manitoba. We hope this message helps you meet Jesus and grow in faith. So you might be tired of this question because I've asked it a couple times at the start of this series. How's your New Year's resolution going? Is there anyone that actually you can say you are still holding on to your New Year's resolution? Because I actually can't put my hand up for this one. Well, I didn't really make one to begin with. But New Year's resolutions are tough. And we've been in this sermon series called Restart, where we're talking about this time of year where maybe we want to start something new or maybe we want to restart something old that we've tried in the past. And whether we kind of succeeded or not, hey, sometimes it's worth giving it another shot. But we've been talking about this whole idea of change because change, we all know, is hard. Change is difficult to do. And the reason why change is difficult is because anytime we're talking about a change in our lives, we're actually talking about tension. We're talking about tension, about being pulled in two different directions at once because there's always a tension in change between where you currently are and who you're trying to become. See, we have this momentum that wants to keep us on the track our lives are. We are, whether or not we like to admit it, we are creatures of habit. You know, we make, we drink our coffee the same way every day, or maybe that's just me. You know, you do the same morning routine every day, you know, whether that's fighting with kids to get them out of the door or whether that's, you know, your morning time you spend. We often have these routines and practices. And if we want to make a change to it, We're actually forcing ourselves to step out of what's normal. And so there's this tension point between where we are and where we want to be. And managing and navigating that tension is how change can actually happen. And so we, in this series, we've been looking at kind of three things. We started off by talking about maybe it's time to restart your faith. Maybe when we talked in this message uh, at the beginning, I'm just doing this to kind of catch everyone up. We started by talking about sometimes actually reasons why we maybe don't want to believe and how Jesus responds to those things. Because sometimes when it comes to our faith, I talked about a moment that I had when I realized that what I had believed, what I had thought, the direction I had been going in needed to change. And it was this point of saying that who God is became so clear to me in a moment that I actually had to go back to the foundation and the roots of my faith and actually say, there were some things I had to let go of so that I could grab to what was true. And in that message, we talked about this passage that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, where he says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And this is something that God does in our lives when we come into a relationship with him, is he makes us new. But Paul does something tricky with the grammar here that doesn't carry into our English very well. This is a a being made new and then a constantly being renewed and constantly made new after. The new life is not just once and then you carry on. The new life is fresh and keeps being remade and renewed in us. And Paul talks more about that in the rest of his writings together. And so we talked about this. What does it mean to restart our faith? And if we are this new creation, and I hope that's something you want to lean into and see yourself as, what comes next is saying, well, maybe it's time to restart our purpose. To say, what is the purpose? What is the meaning? Where do I find what I'm trying to become, what I'm trying to do? Because when Paul writes about this, he says that the new creation leads to a new purpose. And this is where he carries on in that 2 Corinthians 5 passage. He says, And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. And so we talked about Paul's journey. 
And in a nutshell, Paul began his life, his name was different, his name was Saul. And his job was actually to persecute the church, to try and end this movement of people who came to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is Lord. And so his job was to go and make life so difficult for Christians that they would renounce their faith. That was his job, that was his task. And on the way to Damascus, Jesus appears to him and says to him, why are you persecuting me? And he takes Saul's vision away. He makes him blind and says, go into Damascus. I'll give you instructions when you get there. And so Paul, Saul goes to Damascus. He spends three days blind. And meanwhile, God taps this guy named Ananias on the shoulder and says, hey, go to Saul. You need to pray for him and you need to give him this message. And Ananias right away goes, no, 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 I know who this guy is. He's going to throw me in jail. This is a trap, God. You're pointing me into a trap. And God is coercive a little bit with Ananias, says, no, no, this is what you got to do. So he goes, he talks to Saul, he prays for him. Saul's sight is restored and immediately Saul is baptized and begins to preach about Jesus. And in fact, everyone was a little scared of them because everyone's like, this is a trap. This is a big ploy. This is a big scam, but it wasn't. And so we talked about this idea of purpose, about how Saul actually changed his name to Paul to recognize how much his life had changed when he went from a persecutor to a church planter. And sometimes in our lives, we're actually looking for that restart in our purpose of saying, where do I find meaning? Where do I find significance? And there's this broad picture that Jesus gives to us where he says, when you are a new creation, that leads to a new purpose. And I can't tell you specifically, here is your individual, but we who have chosen to follow Jesus have this broad overarching purpose of saying we are Christ's ambassadors. We are called to share who Jesus is. And Jesus gives us this promise that he is with us always. So we started with Restart Your Faith. Then last week we talked about restart your purpose. And today we're going to dig into, so how do we actually do this? How do we actually dig into the new creation? How do we practically, tangibly live this out? And so I'm calling today, restart your habits. Restart your habits. Because sometimes our behaviors, our actions, our things, we're like, you know, I'd like to see some change in that. And so we're going to deal with this idea of habits. But we're going to pick up the story with Paul from where we left off. And so we left off with him in Damascus. He had started to preach and he started to teach. And then he had traveled to Jerusalem and he spent time there. He got to know the other disciples. And Paul became friends with a guy named Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas started to be sent out from Jerusalem to go and preach about Jesus and to go into places where the message of Jesus had never been heard before to tell people about God's love for them, to talk about the relationship that God is calling people into. And so they started going on these missionary journeys where they would travel. And then what happened was Paul and Barnabas had a disagreement and so they chose to split ways and they kind of looked at it and said, well, now we can cover more ground. And Paul sets out on his second missionary journey about 15 years after his encounter with Jesus at Damascus. And so Paul and Silas, and they pick up a guy named Timothy along the way, and they're heading north through what is now modern day Turkey. And they're trying to figure out where to go. They're they're traveling and every place they come up to, God blocks them and says, no, this is not where you're supposed to be. And they couldn't find opportunities to preach. And they're like, okay, God, we're just going to keep going. And so they reach the shore of Western Turkey and they don't know what to do. And Paul has a dream. And in this dream, a man from Macedonia starts pleading with him saying, come here and help us. 
And so Paul wakes up, he talks with his group of people that's with him, and actually what's cool about this is Luke is now with him. Luke joined in along the way. And so Luke, who writes the book of Acts later, from this point on, he is the eyewitness. He's recording this from his own viewpoint of traveling with Paul. And so they decide together, yeah, this has to be what God is calling us to do. Let's go to Macedonia. So Macedonia is what is now northeast Greece. And so they come there, they come to the city called Philippi, which is the major trade route and major kind of thoroughfare of that area. And the Sabbath day comes around and there's no synagogue in the city. Normally they would go find a synagogue and they would start by preaching to Jewish people and say, all these promises of the Messiah from your scriptures are now true in Jesus. But there was no synagogue. So instead they go down to the riverbank and they meet this group of people that gathered for prayer. And they meet this lady named Lydia of Thyatira, who was a merchant. And she grasps what they're talking about. She says, this is true. This Jesus you're telling me about, this is who I want to follow. And so Lydia and her whole household are baptized and the church of Philippi begins in Lydia's home. So this, where Paul and his companions have been traveling, not knowing where they're supposed to go, they end up in Philippi, which is this trade center of the region. And so now we're going to jump ahead 10 years. The church of Philippi has been continuing to grow. Paul has gone on, he's done more travels, but Paul now has been arrested And he pleads his case to Caesar because he's a Roman citizen. And he has a motive in this. Paul's goal is he wanted to get to Rome, which is the capital of the Roman Empire. He wants to get there to strengthen and build up the church of Rome. And so he gets arrested. He says, well, hey, I want Caesar to see my case so that on Caesar's dime, they have to take Paul to Rome. And along the way, he's writing these letters. And at this point, he's with Timothy. And Timothy and him write this letter to the church of Philippi to encourage them. And what's unique about this letter is this letter is purely a letter of encouragement. There's very little, there's almost no correction given. There's no problem in Philippi that they're addressing. It's just, we want to encourage this group of believers. And so he tells them and he's encouraging them and he's saying, this is the mindset I want you to have, that we live the way Christ did. We want to have the mindset of Christ as we live out our faith. And then he goes on to this. He says, dear friends, this is Philippians 2 verse 12. He says, dear friends, you have always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I am away, it is even more important because he's saying, I'm not going to be able to come and see you again. This is probably the last letter I'm going to get to send to you. He says, I don't know if I'm going to get to see you again, but here's my instructions. I want you to hold on to them and treasure them. And so this is what he says. He says, work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. Now there's a lot that Paul packed into this verse, and we're going to spend some time unpacking some of the terms in this. He starts by saying, work hard to show the results. He's saying that when you come into life with Jesus, it is different than life before Jesus. Who you are as a follower of Jesus is actually a difference from then to who you are now. And he's reminding this Philippian church to say, the way you live out your faith should reveal this. The way you live out your life should show this to the people around you, to the nation. This is how you are Christ's ambassadors. This is how you reveal who Jesus is. And then he says, but show the results of your salvation. Now, when we think about salvation, 
And maybe that's a new word to you. And, and we sometimes think of it in terms of it's a noun. It's a thing. It's something that God gives to us. We say we have received salvation through Jesus. And because of salvation, we now have this relationship with God. And we think of it in terms of a noun. It's a thing. But that's not how Paul tended to use it. And it's, in fact, it's not how the word salvation was used in the first century in that area. That's kind of our modern interpretation, our modern definition that we put back on them in the first century. Because what Paul and Jesus and the other apostles did is they would take words of their common language and they would repurpose them to teach truths about who God is. And salvation is one of these repurposed words. And so to understand this, we've got to dig into a little bit of Roman history for a moment here. Whenever the Roman army won a battle, whenever they won a victory over some nation, Caesar wanted his people to know. And so Caesar would commission these messengers that were tasked with going throughout the whole Roman Empire and tell the story of how great our army is, tell the story of how we whooped that other nation, tell the story of how we won. And those messengers had a name. They were called evangelists because the word evangelist means a bearer of good news. So Caesar sends evangelists to tell the stories of the battles that have been won. And the message, the way they would frame this would be, Rome is your salvation. You have been saved from the blank. Fill in whatever nation they were fighting with at the time. At this time, likely it could have been like the Caledonians. It would be, they would send these messengers to the people to say, you have received salvation from the brutal, barbaric Caledonians. That was a common language of the day. Now, to be fair, most of those battles, Rome was actually the aggressor. Rome is the one invading other nations. So it's not like you've been saved from. It's like, hey, we actually beat this nation we went to war with. But Rome used the word salvation to say what you have been saved from. And so Paul and Jesus use the word that way. They talk about being saved from a life without God. They talk about being saved from whatever separates you from God. You have been saved from your flaws, your failures, your sins, anything that separates you. But Jesus and Paul also use salvation to say what you have been saved into. This is not a past tense salvation. This is a future looking salvation. This is looking into what God is calling you towards. So when Paul talks about salvation, he's talking about you have been saved into a relationship. You have been saved into God's grace. You have been saved into his mercy. You have been saved into his truth. You have been saved into his presence. See, these are all verbs. These are all action terms. Salvation is not just a noun. It's an action. It's a verb. It lives something out. So when Paul says, work hard to show the results of what you have been saved into, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. Now these terms, reverence and fear, come up frequently in the New Testament. And it's another case where our English is kind of lacking what the original Greek carries forward. We sometimes, we'd say deep reverence and fear, and we think, well, am I supposed to be scared of God? Is this uh, language of terror and being afraid of who God is? That's not really the best translation. In fact, whenever we see reverence and fear, come to God with fear and trembling, what the writers of the Gospels and writers of the letters are trying to get across to us is to say that God doesn't want us to be terrified. He wants us to approach him with respect and sincerity. He wants us to approach him with some solemnness, not 
truly somber. It's not about it being like stoic and serious about everything, but we need to treat God with the respect that he deserves. And we understand this in a lot of other areas. If you do any home renos and you work with your electrical system in your house, if you're changing outlets, you treat electricity with respect because if you don't, you get zapped. It doesn't feel pleasant. Done it a couple times. You know, turn off those breakers. If you work with hazardous materials or heavy equipment at your work, or if you work in the medical field, you treat the medications that you give to patients with respect and sincerity. Because if you're flippant, if you make guesses, if you just round off all the numbers and guess at the dosage, you can really harm someone. We understand this. I've told the story before of I have a a car that I'm restoring, and so you're often dealing with a lot of rusty parts. And I use this process called electrolysis where you put water, you put electricity through water, through the part, and it rips the rust off the parts. But in the process, it takes the hydrogen and oxygen that make up the molecules of water, and it splits it apart, and it makes this nice foamy, bubbly layer across the top that looks like really gross tomato soup because it's all rusty and red. What happens when you mix hydrogen and oxygen? Well, nothing. What happens when you add a flame to that? What did the inner junior high boy in me do when I thought, oh, this might be fun? Luckily, the cops didn't get called because it sounded like a gunshot and my ears were ringing for a while. I did not treat the hydrogen and oxygen with respect. I did not treat what was powerful with respect in that moment. This is what Paul and the writers of the New Testament constantly are saying is God is powerful. God can do what he wants to do. And in fact, it is out of his great love for us and his great care for us that he calls us into a relationship with him. But God is still very different than us. And we sometimes have to struggle and wrestle through what does that mean that God is different than us? That God has power, that God can do what he wants, that God works in ways, his spirit moves in ways we often don't understand and our minds get, you know, get stuck sometimes trying to figure out what did that mean? What did I just experience? What was that when the Holy Spirit was moving? See, we need to approach God with the reverence and sincerity. But it's not that God wants to be distant from us either because God wants this deep, close relationship with us. That's why Jesus came. So it's not about being terrified, but it's about do we understand, do we come to God with the respect and sincerity? See, this is what Paul's getting at in this. When he says, work hard to show the results of your salvation obeying God with reverence and sincerity. He's saying that as a new creation, as people who have been saved by God into a relationship with him, as we have been given a new purpose of revealing who God is, our lives need to show the evidence of that, to show evidence of who Jesus is. Now we could leave it there, but then we'd be doing a disservice because we have to ask this question, how? So how do we actually do that? How do we practically, tangibly let our lives show that we are this new creation, that we are living in this new purpose? And for this, I'm actually going to go to the wisdom and the quotes of every mom who has ever lived has said this statement, actions speak louder than words. Am I right? Wasn't just my mom? See, our actions are so much bigger than intentions. We can carry intentions of, well, I want to do that. But until we actually turn that intention into an action, nothing changes. In fact, we often evaluate ourselves based on our intentions. And we think, yeah, I'm doing pretty good at that. I have this intention that I'm going to go to the gym three times a week. But if I don't turn that intention into an action, 
Well, did it do any good that I intended to go to the gym three times a week? Doesn't. See, when it comes to our faith, it's the same thing. We can have an intention of saying, I want to grow close to God. And that's a great starting point. Don't get me wrong. But what are we doing to turn that intention into an action? Because when that intention becomes action, that's when we start to reveal who Jesus is in our own lives, to the people around us. And so everything we do, every action we take, every behavior is shaped by our character, our behaviors, and our habits. In fact, we we sometimes think that we're in control of every decision we make, but psychologists actually tend to say, well, we, we are, but we also aren't, because we are often shaped by these things already. Now, I don't claim to be a psychologist. I'm going to pull from people that are much smarter than me that have researched all this and dig this in, because I found some fascinating things in the realm of psychology about this. So what we're going to do for a moment is we're going to talk about behavior modification. And just as a disclaimer, I am not talking about behavioral modification of your spouse or of your kids, because I have no clue how to do any of those. We're talking about behavioral modification of self. How do I actually change my own behaviors out of my default? How do I actually change a habit out of where I usually am to where I want to be? How do we handle this tension between where we are, where we want to be. And so this realm of behavioral modification, there is a lot of different perspectives, a lot of different viewpoints. I'm just going to look at one. And this isn't the be-all, end-all, but I'm going to look at this one because I think it's helpful. And there's a guy named B.J. Fogg. He is a behavioral research scientist at Stanford University. He's written a bunch of books about this. And he wrote this little book called Tiny Habits. And he came up with this formula for behavior. And this is one perspective, one understanding of this. He says, every behavior comes down to three variables, motivation, ability, and prompt. So motivation is your desire to do the behavior. Ability is your capacity to do the behavior. And prompt is your cue to do the behavior. It's like the start button. Now, if something, if you have high motivation to do something, that's awesome. That's great. If you have a high ability to do something, that means it's going to be easy to do that task. And in fact, motivation and ability have this neat little relationship in this formula he came up with. Because if we are, if something is very difficult to do, our ability to do it is low, we need a higher motivation to step forward and do it. But we're still missing the prompt. And so he writes it out as this math formula. Behavior equals motivation times ability times prompt. And if any one of those is zero what happens? Behavior doesn't happen. And so this is, what he, this is how he sums up. He says, we can understand the behaviors we want to do by these three things, motivation, ability, and prompt. And so when I read this, something struck me. Because if you go to the next verse in the letter that Paul wrote to Philippians, Paul writes this. He says, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and power to do what pleases him. Well, desire is another word for motivation. And power references ability. Well, where's the cue? See, that's where we come in. Paul actually understood something that research scientists are only figuring out now. God is working in you, giving the desire and power to do what pleases him. And Paul talks more about what pleases him is us living in a relationship with him, us following who God has called us to be as people. So, Fogg comes up with this formula. Because prompt is the most difficult one. And he writes, he wrote in his book, Tiny Habits, about how prompt is actually the one where these fail. We can have oodles of motivation. We can have the capacity, a high ability. 
But if we don't prompt ourselves to start it, the behavior never happens. And so he comes up with this little thing and he even put this on his website. I don't think it's a great idea to sell books. If you can summarize your entire book in one sentence, then you put that sentence on your website. That doesn't sell books in my mind, but hey, it was there. So he writes, he says, after I blank, then I will blank. So after I trigger, so after something, to give yourself the prompt, you say, well, after I do this, then I will this. So what what you're doing is you're tagging the new behavior onto an old behavior. So how many of you use your cell phone as your alarm clock? A lot of us do. What do you do after you turn off your alarm on your clock, on your phone? Social media, Facebook, Instagram, that game. Like, where does your thumb naturally go after you hit stop on your alarm? See, here's where you can create a prompt for yourself. After I turn off my alarm, then I will open the Bible app. Then I will go to my prayer list. And so it's not about saying, I'm going to start something new. It's about saying, when I have something I already do, I'm going to tag on the prompt for the behavior I want to start. And this is tiny enough and small enough, you could write it on a post-it note. You could stick it on your coffee maker saying, after I make coffee, then I will sit down and spend time with God. Then I will open my Bible. Then I will, whatever spiritual habit you're saying you want to grow, whatever discipline that is, whether it's like, I want to spend time journaling. I want to spend time in listening prayer. I want to, you know, encourage myself to fast or to serve or whatever discipline you're saying, this is the habit I want to start. We can create a prompt for ourselves because often the motivation is there. The desire is there. The ability is there. We have the volitional power to do what we want to do, but we need the cue. So this is how you start a habit. You have to figure out what's the prompt that will make me do this habit. But what if you have a habit you want to get rid of? What if you have a behavior, a trait, something where you're like, I want to get rid of that habit? See, when you want to get rid of a habit, you actually do something a little different. It still follows the same formula because it's easier to replace a habit than it is to remove it. In fact, if you just try to stop a habit and you don't replace it with anything, we'll naturally go back to whatever that habit was. So instead, he says, when I want to, instead I will. When I want to, you can fill in the blank with whatever it is that you want to get rid of. Instead, I will. Because what you're doing then is you are replacing. You're not just ending. You're choosing to say, I am going to remove this by replacing it with something better. And this is a way that our minds work better when we replace rather than just try to end it. And so essentially when Paul is saying, work hard to show the evidence of your salvation, we can read that into saying, what habit will you make? And what habit will you break? What behavioral change will we make in ourselves to work out our salvation. Now, this seems difficult. As simple as we can break it down into little catchy sayings, but this is still something that is difficult. We need to recognize that. But you don't have to do this alone because it's God who works in us to do this. But it's not 100% God and it's not 100% you. It's a mix. God can give us the desire and the motivation, but we have to choose the prompt to make it happen. But there's another way that we don't have to do this alone. And that is that we are in a community for a reason. 
In fact, every time that there was a problem in a community, problem in a church that Paul writes to, he writes and he addresses the individual problems of the people that are in that community because when we address the individual, the health of the community grows. And so what we can do to help each other in this is lean to two little things called accountability and advocacy. This is how we can help each other with the habits that we want to break or the habits we want to make or the behavioral changes we want to do. So accountability is when you hold someone responsible to follow through on a decision, and this is key, that they have made. Accountability only works if the other person has held that decision to say, I want to make this choice. Then you could hold them accountable. But the other thing about accountability is that accountability requires a negative consequence to be effective. And this is why we tend to not like accountability. Because it's like, hey, I'm going to meet up with you once a week and we're going to say, hey, did you spend more time praying? Did you spend more time reading? Did you do that? And if you're like, no, and you're like, okay, uh, that had no effectiveness. But advocacy, advocacy is something else. Advocacy is supporting a particular course of action by focusing on the benefits. Advocacy is saying, this change that you want to make, here's what it's going to lead to. This is the benefit it is going to have when you lean into this, when you move forward in it. See, advocacy requires presenting a compelling, positive result for the person. So let's, let's use a, an example like reading scripture. Accountability would be, man, you really failed this week. You only read your Bible once. Who wants to hear that? No one. Advocacy is to be like, you know what? I was reading this and it made sense to me. You want to read this passage with me? Because what you're doing is you're presenting the positive outcome of the behavior. Advocacy is way more powerful than accountability. See, accountability works best when it's mutual and progress happens at a similar pace between the two people that have entered into an accountability relationship. But the moment that the progress happens at different paces, accountability often breaks down. But advocacy, it doesn't require that balance. Advocacy works best when the goal is clearly presented, it's compelling, and it's attractive. It's something that we want. Because here's the difference. Accountability closes off where we don't want to go but advocacy draws us towards where we want to go. Accountability is like building a fence around yourself and saying, I I need to stay inside this fence. Advocacy is saying, there's something good that I want to pursue. There's something good that I want to reach for. There's this old fable, this story. Whether it's true, whether it happened or not, no one really knows. But the story goes that a Canadian farmer was visiting his distant relative who was a farmer in Australia in the wilderness. And they toured his cattle operation together. And at the end of the day, the Canadian farmer, as polite as he was, just couldn't hold back saying something and saying, you know, buddy, you're doing this all wrong. And the Australian farmer is like, well, okay, well, what do you mean? I can't do an Australian accent. Don't ask me to try. So the Canadian farmer is like, you've done something wrong. The Australian guy politely says, okay, well, tell me what. And the Canadian farmer says, there's no fences. You have this entire ranching operation. You have hundreds of acres. You have thousands of head of cattle. And you have no fences. What's this about? Because you need fences to keep your cattle in. An Australian farmer says, well, out here it's a little different. We dig wells instead of building fences. Because it's so dry out here, 
the cattle learn pretty fast. If they don't stay close to the well, they're going to die. So I don't need to build miles and miles of fences across the Australian outback. I dig wells and my cattle stay close to the well. See, that's a comparison of accountability versus advocacy. Accountability says, here's the fence. Here's the behavioral set that we've agreed to. You need to stay inside it. And in fact, when accountability is forced upon someone, what do they do? They rebel against it because it's actually you're caging someone in. But advocacy, this is what Paul does way more. There's times when Paul uses accountability, but Paul uses advocacy more. And he speaks to this is what life is when you choose to stay close to the well, when you stay close to what draws you together, when you choose to stay close to Christ who described himself as, I am the living water. I mean, the well metaphor couldn't even get better than that. But what would you rather do? Would you rather be on trying to stay on the outer boundary of what you have? Or would you rather draw deep to the center, to the source of life? So Paul used both of these in the church. There's times when accountability is what you need. There's also times where advocacy will help you make the change you want to make better. So we don't need to do this alone. So what habit do you want to make? What habit do you want to break? Who will help you reach your goal? I can't answer these questions for you, but you can answer them for yourself. You probably know some of those things already. And so I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that, to pull out your phone, use your notepad, or maybe you brought paper notes with you, and write this out in the notes app on your phone or something. What habit do I want to make? What habit do I want to break? Who's going to help me reach this goal? Or you, yeah, take a picture of the the screen. That's easier to hold. That's easier to do. But to ask this question, who will help you reach that goal? Because Paul encourages the Philippian church, this church that is doing well, this church that actually doesn't have problems. I mean, that in itself is a small miracle in the first century. Miracle even today. But Paul tells them to still strive to work out your salvation. Work out what you have been saved into. Show evidence of it because that is when the witness of who Jesus is becomes so compelling and so powerful and so strong that people can't help but want to lean in towards it. That is what it means to be Christ's ambassadors. That is what it means to reveal who Jesus is to our world is through this of saying, are we working out what have we been saved into? Is that so compelling? Is that so attractive? Is life with Christ so important to us that we can't help but let it ooze out of everything we are? Because that's what Paul is calling us into. That's what I want to pray for us to wrap up our service. God, you know us intimately. You know how our brains work better than anyone here on earth because you created us. But you created us with this desire and this need to know you. And Lord, we often try to fill that need with all kinds of things. And every one of us knows what that peace is, what that thing is that we would like to get rid of that we know is in the way between us and you. And your word tells us that that's possible. Your scripture tells us that we can draw closer to you. That is your spirit living in us that draws us closer to you. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd be speaking to us all this week. That you'd be revealing to us the places. When you shine your light, it is gentle. And even though it sometimes exposes things we don't want to see, 
we know that it leads us into the truth. And so, Lord, I invite you. And I can only pray this for myself. And, and if, it's a, if you want to make this decision, you can pray it along too. But Lord, would you reveal light to the places where we need to make changes? Would this be a season of restarting the habits that we have where we actually want to address some of our behaviors and our being so that we can draw closer to you? And so Lord, would you help us in that? You promise that you are with us always. And so we ask you, would you help us in this to see our habits restarted and reshaped to become closer to you and to reveal who you are. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray this together. Amen. Folks, next week we are launching into a new series. Mac was telling us about it earlier called Your Failure Is Not Final. And I want to encourage you to think about who you want to invite to come to this series with you because this is a series that is going to be about drawing us into what God does with us and in us and through us when we experience difficult things. So folks, I hope to see you next Sunday and have a great week. We hope this message helped you to take the next step in your faith journey. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 11 a.m. You can find out more about us by going to mygrandvalley.ca.